Well, good morning. It is, it's cold in here. Um, But you know what? It's good to be here. Um, I love the fact that you guys meet here on the college campus. Um, You know, I, I spent the, really the last 10 years of my life on the college campus. I actually came to faith in Christ my freshman year of college at a school in Tennessee. And I look back on my four years as a student there. Uh, involved in the ministry of campus outreach, and those were some of the most foundational times in my life and my spiritual walk with Christ. And after that, came on staff and moved to Illinois. Um, was at Bradley University for seven years on staff as a as a campus minister, and so uh, before transitioning out of that into pastoral ministry and pursuing church planting. So the college scene is very near and dear to my heart. Um, but it's also good to be here to celebrate Advent with you. Uh, this is a special time, considering the coming of Christ into the world and what that means for us. We're going to look here in Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through 25, and we're going to look at the nature of Christ's miraculous coming and God's purposes for it. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And when Joseph had woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. When President Barack Obama nominated the Christian geneticist Francis Collins to head the National Institutes of Health in 2009, there were some American scientists who began to question that decision. Collins was a leading physician and a geneticist who was a a recent convert out of atheism into Christianity. And so some of the elite scientific community reacted, should someone who professes such strong belief in God be qualified to lead the largest biomedical research agency in the world. An article in the Huffington Post, it reports that this argument, that scientific inquiry is incompatible with religious belief, it's been gaining traction in recent years. In fact, the article showed that American scientists are about half as likely as the general public to believe in God or a God who supernaturally interacts with our world. Yet, The report found that the percentage of scientists um, that believe in some form of God is higher than you may think at 51%. And we recognize that 
scientists throughout time have relied on data and observation to make sense of the world, yet there are still some big questions that science just cannot answer. Questions like, where did matter come from? What is consciousness? What makes us human? For those who have no room for entertaining miracles in the supernatural, they'll be left with unsatisfying answers to questions like this and many others. But for those who don't think that science and belief in miracles, such as the virgin birth, are mutually exclusive, there's a wonder and an awe in true knowledge to be gained. Well, we, we aren't all scientists, but we do live in a culture that criticizes the Bible at various turns when it defies naturalistic explanations or rationalistic explanations. And we can begin to feel the effect of being of the world being quick to discredit belief in the supernatural and the miraculous. And we can be moved to doubt, doubt the necessity of the doctrine of the virgin birth, and that's a mistake. Because as the culture moves more and more to preferring easy naturalist explanations and denying God's truth, God calls us to acknowledge the fact and the fittingness of the virgin birth to the gospel story because his people need to know that he is supernaturally acted in this world, breaking into the world for his redemptive purposes. So what is it here that Matthew is leading us to acknowledge in this passage? First, that we should acknowledge the fact of the virgin birth. I'm going to pause there. Is this microphone messing up? Do I need to be, I'm good like this? You guys can hear? Okay, that's good. I was getting a little bit of a reverb. So Matthew calls us to acknowledge the fact of the virgin birth. The Bible simply presents it as fact. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Just kind of a matter-of-fact statement, almost a statement you could pass over on, on a cursory reading because really Matthew's not spending a whole lot of try, time trying to give it a whole lot of explanation. And most people, when they want to kind of make up a story, they'll elaborate on it, they'll expand it, they'll give it a fuller explanation just so as to make it more convincing. But that's not what he does. It's not natural for human beings to describe something so mysterious and supernatural in such a short space. After all, he has spent 17 verses in chapter 1 chronicling through Jesus' human genealogy, and he's spending part of one verse talking about Jesus' divine origin. So if we're confused or stunned, think about Joseph in this story. When he comes to the knowledge that Mary is pregnant, yet they hadn't been together in that way, he had to be reassured from an angel. The natural explanation was that she was unfaithful during their betrothal period, and uh, they couldn't go forward with their marriage. But verse 19 states, makes clear, as a just person... Joseph didn't want to publicly shame her, and he was willing to divorce her quietly. And while he's kind of wrestling with this, the Lord sends an angel in a dream, verse 20, to assure and to confirm to him that the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Just again, another matter-of-fact statement. More information is given, but not a detailed explanation as to how this is possible. And we recognize it was obviously given to him in an amazingly impressionable way, in a dream, through an angel. But I'm sure Joseph was puzzled and had all kinds of questions, right? 
Who conceived him? What does that mean? Why me? Why us? How is this happening? And yet his response, okay, Lord, and he did what the Lord had asked him. That response, is, it's instructive for us because even though we don't have it all figured out, even though we don't have all the answers to all the questions that we have, or even if those answers are knowable, there is a true and right response of trusting God that is being highlighted for us here. Who is this instructive for? I think of Christian parents who hold to, the God, who hold to God's word and pass the story on to their children so that the next generation can know how God has worked despite the feeling of being maybe inadequate in your own Bible knowledge or feeling that way. Not concentrating on what you don't know, but concentrating on what you do know, what God has revealed. And as their children see the, their confidence in the Scriptures, it makes a huge effect. After all, there are a number of incorrect responses today that disregard this straightforward teaching in Scripture. For example, as I was kind of putting this message together, I came across an interview of one of our nation's largest churches, and the pastor was asked specifically the question, what do you believe about the virgin birth? And this is what he said, I could not in print or in public deny or affirm the virgin birth. When I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. What's he implying? that it's optional, or it's irrelevant to the gospel, or I can only believe things I can explain or prove fully. I just think that's misguided. That human rationalism that flies right in the face of explicit teaching of Scripture. The Bible, as we have seen, it presents it as fact. It's also instructive for the Christian college student who often has to kind of weather the storm of professors ridiculing and undermining belief in the supernatural or belief in God or the Bible. Even Christian theology professors concluding it makes no difference whether you believe the virgin birth or not. Being a college minister for a decade of my life, I've interacted with this a lot, and I've seen students being misled by skeptical professors who should be really... Who, who should really be skeptical about their own heightened sense of skepticism. There is a good and true and right and healthy skepticism, and then there is unfounded skepticism. However, in my experience, it's less of the professor totally changing the paradigm for the student, sowing doubt on religion and Christianity in particular. It's less of that, and it's more of the student not really liking everything that the Bible has to say Maybe they've had a bad emotional experience in the church in the past, and so uh, they're wanting to kind of make their own way in life, in life apart from God. And if a professor or an authority of some kind can add a seemingly plausible criticism onto the faith, they just kind of latch onto it. In other words, people aren't led away from the truths of Scripture by mere intellectual objections. It's a matter of the will. And if they're turned from God they will probably find compelling any objection or doubt that justifies their lifestyle. That's what I've experienced doing evangelism on the college campus, but it's also what Tom Nichols describes in his book, The Death of Expertise, where he begins to shed light on the current culture's campaign against established knowledge, knowledge that has just been widely held in evidence for many for a long time. This is what he says. He says, democracies with loud public spaces 
are always against established knowledge. Change and progress is what's championed. Restless questioning of orthodoxy is what's celebrated. And he begins to kind of tease this out and label what these loud public spaces are. He, he describes it as the internet or social media, but certainly part of the internet. And this is what he says. He says, the problem with the internet is that there is good information out there, but it's in the midst of a bunch of lousy information as well. However, people often decide beforehand what they believe, and then they go to the internet to kind of buttress that belief. You search until you reach the conclusion that you're after, and then you click your way to validation. And it just kind of provides a false sense that the opinions of many people are tantamount to fact. What Nichols is saying is that he's just pointing out that today people are swayed away from established knowledge on a bigger scale And that knowledge can be biblical knowledge. And as it applies here to the virgin birth, it's not just an opinion forged by men through the church age. It's a fact given by God. Therefore, to not acknowledge it as a fact is to deny the Word of God itself. So we not only acknowledge this as a biblical fact, but we also acknowledge its fittingness to the story, the story that God is writing. And some of the concern in verses 21 to 23 is to show this that the incarnation fits with Old Testament expectation. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy from Abraham to David to the exile return and to the Christ. So as to say, hey, Jesus Christ fits in the storyline. As the Old Testament's coming to an end and before the events of Matthew's gospel begins, you've got 400 years of silence. Just think about that. You got 400 years where no prophet or definitive word from God is occurring. Where would your thoughts go if you were an Old Testament believer, if you were during that time? Where would your hope go? They were waiting for questions like this, answers to questions like this Who was going to be the king on David's throne? And by the way, where is David's throne? I thought it was supposed to be an everlasting kingdom, yet there is clearly no king right now. Has God forgotten about his promises? Or has he had enough with us? Have we been just too rebellious that he's turned his back on us? When will he restore the kingdom? Who will be the anointed king? How will he deal with the problem of sin? And when, if ever, is he going to do it? Though the Old Testament believer had many questions left unanswered, he was looking forward to one who was to come, that the Messiah would come, and he was holding on, looking forward to him with promises and prophecies, such as this, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. You remember after Satan deceives Adam and Eve, they fall. God comes to Satan, and he issues him a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. The one that God sends will be born of a woman, and he will, he will be a Satan crusher. Genesis 12, 3, God says to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he makes clear that a Messiah is going to come from the line of Abraham, and he will bless all nations, not just Israel. Deuteronomy 18, 5. 1815, rather. Moses' prophecy that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, and it's to him that you shall listen. The Messiah, he was going to be a prophet, and he was going to be like Moses, but better. 
Psalm 110.4, David's psalm about the Lord who will rule in the midst of the enemies. Yes, he will be a king, but he will also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah would be a priest. Then you have verses and prophecies like Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Again, he's going to be a king. So what do you have? Just looking at these few verses, what do you have? You have a Messiah who would crush Satan. He would be a prophet. He would be a priest. He would be a king. And yes, he would be declared to be the Son of God. Psalm 2-7. A psalm about the Lord's anointed. It states that the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. A prophecy that God will birth his son, give his son to the world, and he will be begotten of God himself. If you added up all of these and plenty of others, they would conclude this, that the Lord is going to send a man, but he will not be like any other man. He's going to be special. And if it wasn't so obvious to them that he would be God in the flesh, adding up all these prophecies together about who he would be, what he would do, and all the events surrounding his coming, it fits. It's fitting that he would be the God-man. After all, in his earthly life, Jesus does things that only God can do, and it leads Peter to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The incarnation fits with the Old Testament expectation, but it's not just that it fits with the Old Testament expectation. It fits with our need for redemption. Jesus' name fits with the answer of the problem of sin. You remember what his name is, what it means. It means deliverer. And it was fittingly given by God himself to them. Joseph and Mary were not free to just name him whatever they wanted, but they were to name him Jesus. Why? Verse 21. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's his reason for coming. And Jesus would later declare, I came to seek and to save the lost. It was his self-conscious mission to save people. Because he is God's answer to the major problem with the human race, sinfulness. Okay, so we see he's the savior of the world and he's come to deal with the sin issue. But why was it necessary for him to be conceived by the Holy Spirit? Just simply put, There needed to be one who was wholly consecrated to God, set aside for his purposes as a mediator between God and man. The Old Testament sacrificial system, it showed that sin needed to be atoned for by a perfect, spotless sacrifice of a lamb. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so even from the point of conception, to avoid the taint of original sin, God intervened. After all, how could any mere fallible person atone for the sins of others? They can't. The picture of the Old Testament system was this. The pure was willing to die for the impure. Only God can satisfy his just requirements. So he sent his incarnate son to be the God-man to deal with the problem of sin. He came to deliver us because no one else could. And therefore, the virgin birth was necessary. In our day and age... If you were to kind of ask the average person on the street, what do you see as the biggest problem with our world? In your own words, what is the biggest problem 
with our world, you'd probably get a wide range of answers to that question. And many of it would probably relate back to some kind of sin and its effects in the world. You may hear stuff like this, well, it's, it's, uh, it's lack of education. Uh, people are dumber these days. Uh, you may hear, oh, it's, it's, it's a war, it's threats of war and humanity not being willing to have peace. It's, um, it's militant worldviews that just can't get along. It's politics. Everything is just so ramped up these days. Again, all kind of accurate effects of sin. But most, most of the people you would talk to, they would say, well, it's, they would kind of summarize it. It's something out there. It's people out there doing stuff. And rarely will you have maybe an honest person say, what's, what's wrong with the world? I am. The biggest problem with the world is sin. And I, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I contribute. I'm not suggesting that we're all the biggest sinners in the world. But even the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life that he was chief among sinners. Before we see the wickedness of other people, even others who have shown it on greater scales... We look inward and we see it in ourselves. And when we do that, we know that we are fallen. We are what's wrong. We realize, I need a redeemer. I need a deliverer. And that's what Christ has come to do. He has come to forgive me of sin and to clear my record, but he's also come to change me, to deliver me from living for sin and for self. I bring this up because if we misdiagnose the problem, then we suggest the wrong antidote. Our greatest problem in life is spiritual. And when we see what Christ has come to do, that we could not make ourselves right with God, that we could not clean ourselves up before Him, but that He has come to redeem us. We are not our own Redeemer. He has come to redeem us. Then we have love for a Savior that God has provided. So what's wrong with the world? Personal sin for which Jesus came to deliver us. It's in His name. But it's not just in his name, it's also in his title. Jesus' title fits with his goal. Verse 22. All this took place, we'll just pick up there. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7:14, which was quoted earlier in the service. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus came to save from sin, yes, but in some ways that was a means to an end. The incarnation is God communicating to us, I want to be with you. I love you. I want to be with you. So the incarnation, through the virgin birth, it's not merely a doctrine to be believed. It shows us the heart of God for His people. Jesus came. He was God in the flesh, God among them. And for us, He has sent His Spirit and poured it into our hearts, and He is with us still. Do you believe that? That He is with you? If you do, and you let that sink in, it creates a joy and a peace inside of you. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I and our two-year-old daughter went to go visit family and thank for Thanksgiving in Tennessee, and uh, as we typically do. Um, my grandmother, had, she's 93 years old. She's been walking faithfully with the Lord for over 80 years. Uh, she has, was recently hospitalized. She had taken a fall, was hospitalized, and then eventually moved into an assisted living center where she has no friends, 
and fewer family visits. My whole life, I have had the privilege of living in the same neighborhood as her and my grandfather who passed away a few years ago. And they were there for all my sporting events. Um, They were there for Christmases and family get-togethers. And throughout her whole life, she has been a vivacious, sweet, caring, just emotionally empathetic, affectionate person who always loves spending time with family. In fact, to the point where when grandchildren and great-grandchildren would come and uh, visit with her and when it was time for them to leave, she would always shed tears because she, she would know that she'd miss them and she loved them so much. And on this visit, upon visiting her, it was obvious that things had changed pretty drastically. She had visibly, she had lost a lot of weight due to lack of motivation to eat. She had no visible recognition of the faces that were in front of her, making it really hard for me and my family to hold back tears. There was no emotional warmth or affection that was really giving towards us. It was hard. And we prayed with her that God would comfort her, that he would make his presence known and felt by her. And while it, it seems that she is all alone, I take great comfort in the fact that he is with her, that he cares about her, that the God whom she believes in, whom her soul trusts and loves, he is with her. He is holding on to her. Even though she may not be in a place where she's holding on to her family, he is holding on to her. And that is that's the great truth of Advent, the great truth of Christianity, that God has come to be with man. He came miraculously, born of a virgin, ultimately to redeem us from sin and its effects and to give us his presence. And when your heart knows that, you want to, it overflows with thankfulness and gratitude for a God who would love us that much. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and He has come to take away the effects of sin as far as the curse is found, and He is also Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that You would care so much to send Your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer. You are our present God. May we overflow with thankfulness to you for providing for us in ways that we could not provide for ourselves. May your word strengthen our faith to combat doubts, God, to to hold and see the beauty of what you have done in sending your son, born of a baby, miraculously, to to grow up, to live the perfect life, fully pleasing to you, to lay his life down for us. God, we thank you that we don't go through this life alone. We thank that you are a God who supernaturally has intervened and supernaturally works in ways even today, and you are with us today. God, you are Emmanuel. May we know it, and may we feel it, and may we treasure that truth deep in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.